Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And uh, we have arrived at the midpoint, the halfway point of our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. And because it's a short chapter, why don't we just read it and uh, we'll talk about it tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreign enjoys them. A foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun and never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have, knowing how to walk before the living? What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and a striving after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Father, we thank you for your word and even passages like this that sound so depressing, sound so discouraging. Father, we know that they were penned ultimately by your spirit and uh, you wanted them here in your word for a reason and they have a purpose and I ask that your uh, spirit would come now and illuminate our minds to understand this passage and also to make application of it in our lives, Lord, that we would walk away learning something uh, tonight and, and changing and growing and becoming more of who you want us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have heard that a couple of weeks ago, up in Huntsville, 29-year-old Richard Cobb was executed by lethal injection for the capital murder of one of three people that he and his partner abducted during a convenience store robbery nearly 11 years ago. Y'all hear about that recent execution? Well, when asked if he had any last words before he died, listen to what he said. Quote, life is death, death is life. I hope that someday this absurdity that humanity has come to will come to an end. Life is death, death is life. I hope that someday this absurdity that humanity has come to will come to an end. What a morbid and depressing, hopeless view of life. And it's obvious that this man didn't know God or fear God because that is a purely secular, godless view of life. And I think that's why unbelievers are described in the scriptures as having no hope and without God in the world, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. 
And so without God in your life, you have no hope, and life seems absurd. It's an absurdity. It, it makes no sense. It's, it's madness, right? That's what we're talking about, finding meaning in the madness. And uh, there, there are even times when life gets so hard, so frustrating, so painful, it seems so absurd, so senseless, that it can even make believers wish they were dead. That's what I've titled the message tonight, When Life Makes You Wish You Were Dead. You know life's pretty bad, right? When it makes you wish you, when you wish you were dead. And um, if you've ever felt that way, you've ever gone through a trial in your life, you've gone through depression, you've dealt with some pain in your life, some, some, some maddening, maddening um, situation that you felt like you were going to lose your mind, right? And uh, you felt like, you know what, maybe it's just better to end my life. Maybe I'd be better off dead. Well, you're in good company uh, when it comes to biblical characters who got so discouraged with their lives that at one point that they either wanted to die or wished they had never been born. Let me just read for you some statements from some of the some of the heroes of the Old Testament. How about Moses? Moses in Numbers uh, chapter 11, verse 15. Here are the uh, people of Israel once again complaining about not having anything to eat. And why did you bring us out here into the wilderness? We want to go back to Egypt. And by this time, Moses is pulling out his hair. And uh, he, he, had, he had had it up to here with these whiny, whining, complaining Israelites. And so he says this in Numbers eleven fourteen. He's talking to God. Um, they were asking for meat. They were complaining against Moses. Moses, we don't have any meat to eat. And so he says, where am I to get meat? To give all this people, for they weep before me, saying, give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So he was overwhelmed with this burden in his life. Happened to be two million people, right? out in the wilderness. He said, so if you're going to deal thus with me, God, please kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. He saw what was happening. <laughs> the wretchedness was coming out in him, right? And he said, Lord, if I found favor in your eyes, just kill me. Just kill me. How about Elijah, the great prophet in 1 Kings Chapter 19, verse 4, you remember the context. He had just defeated the, the prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Baal. He had had a showdown with them um, up, on, up on the mountain, um, up on Mount Carmel. And uh, he had had this great victory and, 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 and slew these 400 prophets of Baal. And God had a great victory that day. And, and uh, Jezebel was hot. She was mad. She was hacked off that he had killed all of her prophets. And so uh, it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. This is 1 Kings 19. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In other words, you got one day, 24 hours, you're a dead man. So she threatens him. 
And it says, he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. So here's this great man of faith, right? It just had this been used greatly of God, stood up to these 400 prophets of Baal, and then some hacked-off woman he's, he's afraid of, right? This queen, this, this wicked queen. Uh, but it was Jezebel, right? So I think he had right to be afraid. He was afraid and arose and ran, and it says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. In other words, there's another great man of God asked God to kill him because he was afraid. So you have this burden, right? This overwhelming burden that caused Moses to want to die. You have this great fear and I think also exhaustion, uh, sheer exhaustion. He, he needed some, something to eat. He needed, some, he needed a, a nap because that's what the angels did, right? He put him to sleep. He woke up, gave him something to eat. How about Job? Job, we know Job's deal, right? Sometimes the sufferings of life, the trials of life are so great, they bear down so heavy upon us that we just wish we were dead. Job chapter 3, verse 21, who long for death, but there is none, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures. I mean, he wanted to die. Job wanted to die. In in, uh, Job chapter 7, verse 15, so that my soul would choose suffocation, death rather than my pains. I would rather be dead than having to deal with the pain that I'm going through right now. Losing all my family, right? Dealing with the physical pain of these boils. And then, of course, you've got Jonah, who you, you may not be in good company with him because he had an attitude. But he he's nevertheless did want to die, right? You remember how suicidal he was. Um, he had a death wish. Uh, let's see, Jonah chapter 1. You know the story in Jonah chapter 1, right? He, he ran away from God. He tried to hide on the boat, and the, the storm came, and he, he got found out. And what did he tell the guys to do? Hey, just take me and throw me overboard. He was thinking that was it. We're just going to end it. That was assisted suicide. That was the first assisted suicide right there, okay? Was, hey, guys, throw me overboard. Well, that didn't work because God had a fish waiting for him, right? He spits him out, and, uh, and then he goes to Nineveh and preaches, and just as he expected, the gracious, compassionate, loving God granted them repentance. There was a full national revival, and uh, Jonah didn't want anything to do with it because he hated the Ninevites. He was a bigot. He was uh, a racist. Uh, they were God's enemies. They were Israel's enemies. And so he says this, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And then he went on and said it a second time in verse 8, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. He was begging God to kill him. He just had a messed up perspective. That was his problem. That's why he was wanting to die, right? He, he just wasn't thinking straight. And I think there's an element in all of us, right, when we get, quote, unquote, suicidal, you're not thinking straight. Well, Solomon was another one of these characters who, because of the injustices and complexities of life, 
concluded that he would be better off dead, or better yet, that he would have never been born. And so Solomon is unique in that he wasn't necessarily uh, going through trials, right? He wasn't feeling all the burdens of being the king of Israel. He, he wasn't upset about some other nation coming to, cry, or coming to know the one true God, not being, being spared God's wrath. Um, he wasn't afraid of anybody or anything, right? What, what was it that got him depressed, got him, quote-unquote, suicidal? Well, it was the, the, the complexities, the injustices, the perplexities of life. Remember back in chapter 4, verse 1, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So he just looked around and saw the oppression in the world and said, this is ridiculous. This is madness. This makes absolutely no sense. So he says in verse 2, I congratulated the dead. Hey, hey, here's to you. If you're dead, better. It's better that you're dead, right? I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. So in other words, he was envying dead people. This is pretty bad. You know your life's in the pits when you envy dead people. But that's what he was doing. But he went further. He says, but better off than both of them, the dead and the living, is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Man, it will be better. The best person, best case scenario is you were never born. Man, that's really a low view, right, of life. And uh, here in chapter 6, we see Solomon repeating himself, saying some of the same things that he was saying back in chapter 4, lamenting about the problems that he saw with life under the sun, which we, which we know that means life without who? God, right? Life under the sun is what's going on here on this earth, purely horizontal, Right When you look on a horizontal level and you don't take into account that there's a God in heaven, right, who's ruling over all things. And so chapter 6 here, Ecclesiastes 6, is one of the darkest, most depressing chapters in this entire book, and I would say possibly the entire Bible. You're like, great, I'm glad I came tonight. Well, one of the things that disillusions people the most about life, okay, along with the fears that we have to face, the pressures that we have to face, the trials that we have to face, all these other things, right, that these other men we read about led them to want to die. One of the, one of the things that goes along with all that is the, all the mysteries and the puzzles uh, or the perplexities that seem to make no sense and seem to have no solution. Sometimes that just wears us out. And, and when we face perplexing problems in our lives, it sometimes makes us wonder if life is even worth living. Well, what, what, what is this all about anyway? And so in this passage here, in chapter 6, I think Solomon was trying to unravel some of these mysteries of life that he was experiencing, and he, he lists a series of frustrations or disappointments that he experienced in his own life that left him questioning what life was really all about. 
And I think uh, this, I agree with Chuck Swindoll when he said that this chapter is really a self-portrait. That, that these, hypo, these are not hypothetical people that he's making up, right? We, we've learned of these hypothetical situations, the miser. He, he creates these scenarios, right? Uh, the, he's not creating scenarios here. He's talking about himself. And as we go through this, I think you'll see that this is, this is his own testimony. And I think what's unique about this is that many, many people think about life the same way Psalm was thinking about life in this chapter, that it's just a long list of frustrations and disappointments that has left them with serious questions about God. That's pretty typical, right? You talk to a lot of unbelievers, and that's pretty much how you describe their life. It's just Their life is just a long list of frustrations and disappointments and disillusionments that's left them with all these questions about God. And that's where Solomon is at here in chapter 6. And so what we're going to see tonight is three frustrations, three frustrations of life or with life without God, okay? Three frustrations about life without God. In other words, if you don't know God, if you don't have a relationship with God, if you don't take God into account when you consider your life, these three things are going to frustrate the stew out of you. And they may at times make you wish that you were dead or that you had never been born. Okay? So we're going to see these three frustrations. What are they? Number one, without God, life's blessings cannot be enjoyed. Without God, life's blessings cannot be enjoyed. Number two, without God, life's cravings cannot be satisfied. Life's cravings cannot be satisfied. And then number three is without God, life's questions cannot be answered. So those are our three frustrations. Let's look at them one at a time. First of all is without God, life's blessings cannot be enjoyed. And this is verses 1 through 6. Notice verse 1. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. And so whatever he's describing here, it is bad. He calls it evil. He calls it a severe affliction. You say, well, what is it? What is so evil? What is so severe? Well, here Solomon is describing a person who God had blessed abundantly with fortune and with fame. And later we're going to see with numerous children and and good health and long life. And again, I think this is the description of of Solomon himself. He's describing himself here because we know that God had initially blessed Solomon with all sorts of wisdom and and wealth and honor, unlike any other king who ever lived before him or whoever would live after him. But then Solomon's heart began to drift away from the Lord, didn't it? He started marrying all these foreign women and began worshiping their gods, right? Right? He got more than he bargained for, right? Because with every woman, foreign woman, came a foreign god. And he had to honor each one of his wives and build a little temple over here and a little thing over here. And next thing you know, he's, he's worshiping idols along with Jehovah God. And so what happened? God removed the blessing off of Solomon's life, and, and he was no longer able to enjoy his fame and fortune. He still had all that stuff. He still had all the wisdom. He still had all the fortune. He still had all the wealth. He still had all the the, the fame. 
but he couldn't enjoy it. And so consequently, he became a sad, miserable, unhappy person who felt very dissatisfied and unfulfilled in life. And I think this is the, this is the season of his life that he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Or at least maybe towards the tail end, coming out of this time when he had gotten back right with God, right? And then he's sharing with us his journals. This is how he's describing how he was feeling during that time when he had drifted away from the Lord, which is how we all, what we all experience when we drift from the Lord, right? Life becomes miserable. It becomes unhappy. It becomes depressing. It becomes dissatisfying. It becomes unfulfilling. And you know why? Because God wired us, right, in such a way that we cannot find satisfaction and fulfillment in anything but Him. And so it's like you get, you get off on your own little path trying to find satisfaction, and it's like our power source just, it just shuts down. The capacity to enjoy whatever it is we're trying to enjoy is not there. It's, like, it's almost like you're out, of, uh, you're out of distance, you know, like today I was using my Bluetooth thing when I was studying, you know, and so, you know, because I don't necessarily want to pick up my phone when I'm studying and I want to answer the phone. And so if I walk too far away from my phone, what happens? It doesn't work, right? There's, there's, you, get, you get far enough away from the Lord, you lose the capacity, right, to enjoy what God wants you to enjoy because He wants us to enjoy it in Him. And let's face it, it's frustrating in life to not have everything you want right? It's frustrating when you don't have everything you want. But what's even more frustrating is to have everything you ever wanted in life but not be able to enjoy it. That's far worse. That's maddening. That will drive you insane. And I would just say there's a lot of people living in our community, right? Living in that big old mansion with all the stuff they ever wanted in life. And guess what? They're miserable tonight. They got a bottle open right now, and they're trying to, trying to somehow fill some void in their, in their life. Because, and, it, and it's maddening. It's just driving them crazy. It's like, I thought, once I got this house, once I got these cars, once I got these, this boat and these jet skis and, and, and this, this portfolio and this account and this vacation and went on this cruise and everything would be wonderful, right? Why am I so, why am I so depressed? See, God not only blesses us with stuff, the good things, he's call, He calls it a number of times, the good things of life. Um, God only blesses us with good things, but He also blesses us with the, the ability or the capacity to enjoy what He gives us. Prosperity without the divine gift of enjoyment is nothing. That, that was a quote from Walt Kaiser in his commentary called Total Life. Prosperity without the divine gift of enjoyment is nothing. And we've been learning that through all these enjoyment passages, right? We've highlighted that. This is kind of the, 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 road, the road map, if you will, the road signs along the way. We, we, the last one we came, went by was in chapter 5, verse 18. Just turn back there really quick. 
Ecclesiastes 5.18, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. So he was getting at there in chapter 5, in contrast to that miserable existence of, of just working to get rich, Solomon was exhorting us to be grateful for, uh, to God for the job that he'd given us, to work, hard at, to, to work hard at it, to enjoy the fruit of our labor as God enables. And his point here is that the results of man's labor are a gift from God but also the ability to enjoy those results are a gift of God. You can have all the things you ever wanted and not enjoy them, right? Then that's where we have to understand that, that having things and enjoying things don't necessarily go together. Remember I quoted that uh, line from uh, Philip Ryken. He said, satisfaction not included, right? Not necessarily, it's like batteries sold separately, right? And so just because you have stuff, that doesn't mean you're automatically going to be satisfied. Because God not only has to grant you the stuff, He also has to grant you the, the gift of satisfaction. He needs to empower you to be satisfied in those things and to enjoy those things. And so it's a wonderful thing when God chooses to not only bless us with wealth, but also the ability to enjoy the wealth. And if you don't get both, then the wealth is a curse. If you just get rich, but you don't get the ability, the capacity, you're not empowered by God to enjoy that, those riches, then that is a curse. I was thinking of a math equation. Everything minus God equals nothing. <laughs> Think about that. If you have everything, right, but you don't have God, you got nothing. You got nothing. Kaiser goes on to say this. He says, The gifts of God are not dangled on a string before men's eyes, only to be retracted just as they seem to come within reach. The promise is that in the good plan of God, they will accompany men who fear Him. God really intended that men should come to proper enjoyment of the good material gifts placed in this world by Him, and that the gifts should be a source of constant satisfaction when the things and the users are properly related to the giver Himself. In other words, God wants you to enjoy your spouse. He wants you to enjoy your marriage. He wants you to enjoy food. He wants you to enjoy your job. He wants you to enjoy, enjoy your jet skis. He wants you to enjoy all that stuff, right? He wants you to enjoy that. Such enjoyment is meant to accompany man all the days of his earthly life. No God-fearer ought ever, nor does he ever need to obtain nothing uh, by anxiety, sweat, and emptiness as a reward for all his work, enjoyment is still in the hands of man's creator and redeemer. Again, just a reminder that what, what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17, that God has given us, right, richly supplies us with all things to what? Enjoy. He wants us to enjoy these things. It's not wrong. Don't, don't, don't hear me wrong. Don't hear Solomon wrong. If you're living on the mansion, uh, you know, on the lake, and you've got all that stuff, that doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong. If God, right, Paul said to Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world, 
don't be conceited or to fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. In other words, hey, if you got a lot of stuff, that's fine. That's not the problem. Just don't be proud about it. Don't be conceited. And, and don't put your hope in those things because you know they came maybe pretty quick and they might go pretty quick, right? But just remember, God richly supplied you those things to enjoy. So enjoy them. Have a good time. Nothing wrong with that. And so again, just a great reminder here, the power to enjoy God's gift is itself a gift, which may or may not be given to us by God. I mean, it's as simple as this, right? I mean, God gives us food to eat. He designed us, right, with the need for food. That's how we sustain life. And uh, he could have made everything taste the same, right? It could have all been bland. And it was just more of a, you know, monotonous, I just got to put something in my mouth and chew it up and swallow it, and it doesn't taste like anything, right? But God is such a good, good and gracious God. He gave us food that has all sorts of flavors. He's given us taste buds, right, that, that can enjoy all those things. That's the point. You know, there's people, right, some of you have experiences that have had chemo, right, and, and you eat food and, and it's all kind of just tastes bland. Nothing really tastes good to you. And uh, again, we should, every time we sit down and enjoy a good meal, right, not only is that meal, right, that T-bone steak, that's a gift from God, right? But the, the, the flavors, right, that we can enjoy, the taste buds that, that, that can really make that enjoyable, right, that's a gift from God as well. And so maybe we need to start praying, Lord, thanks for the steak and thanks for the taste buds, right, to enjoy this steak, right? So here's a guy who has not been empowered God has given him everything except the capacity to enjoy what he's given him. That's, a, that's not a blessing. That's a curse from God. Verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say better than miscarriage than he, for it comes in futility and goes in obscurity. Its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun and it never knows anything and is better off than he. In the Old Testament, two of the signs of God's blessing on a man's life was how many kids he had and how long he lived. So if you had a lot of kids and you lived a long life, uh, it, was, it was evident to everyone around you that you were blessed of God. So he's saying, hey, even if this guy, right, has a hundred kids, that's crazy, a hundred kids. And, and lives many years, but he finds no joy in those children. He finds no joy in those years. In fact, when he dies, the truth comes out that he was really not loved and respected by those hundred children, and so they didn't even give him a proper burial. I mean, that was, that was the sign of disrespect. If he didn't get a, a proper burial, right? And they just kind of threw you to the side, threw you in the, in, in, in the, in the dung pile, right, outside the city. I mean, hey, you could have had 100 kids and you could have lived a long life, but if that's how they treat you when you die, guess what? It'd be better if you were never born. It'd be better if you had died in the womb, if you had been born dead, because at least a stillborn is spared from all the pain and all the suffering and all the frustrations of life. As one commentator said, a stillborn never experiences the maddening perversities of life. 
Again, Job comes to mind, and uh, I don't know that I have time to read this whole chapter, but Job chapter 3, I already quoted a couple verses from it, but the whole chapter, Job is lamenting the day of his birth. He's like, God, if this is what was going to happen to me, why did you let me be born in the first place? Just listen to some of the things he said. He says, afterwards, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said, a boy is conceived, may that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Those who curse it, who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan, let it wait for light, but have none. He says, let it not, let it not see the breaking dawn, because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why didn't you just come out and die? Why did the knees receive me? Why the breast that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest with kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who were filling their houses with silver or like a miscarriage which had discarded I would not be. As infants they never saw the light. And so he's saying, hey, in light of what I'm going through, I wish I was never born. I mean, I, would, I, wish, I, I wish I had died in the womb because I would have been in heaven. Right? With all these kings and princes and, again, he had a very skewed perspective, right, uh, on his trials at that time. And we're going to see in the end, he repents. Job repents in the end, doesn't he? For questioning God. Because basically you say, curse the day I, I was born, you're, you're questioning God. You're saying, God, why did you make me? Right? Why did you create me? Back in Ecclesiastes 6, notice Verse 6, even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. Now, this is crazy now. Solomon's getting nuts on us here. He's saying, listen, what if a guy lived 2,000 years? 2,000 years. I mean, that was like over twice the lifespan of even Methuselah lived 900 or something. He was the oldest guy in the Bible, right? I mean, what if he lived twice as long as Methuselah? had lived the longest, basically he's saying, what if the guy lived longer than anybody else who ever lived? Can you imagine living for 2,000 years? That's a long time, right? He's saying, listen, even if you were to live for 2,000 years, but you never enjoyed those 2,000 years, then what difference does it make since you're going to end up dead just like that miscarried baby? And so if you end up in the same place, in the end, then why spend 70 to 80 years, let alone 2,000 years, right, striving and struggling and suffering all the pain and heartache that life brings, trying to survive the rat race, dealing with cancer, right, dealing with all the things that we're talking about tonight, the, the heartaches and the, the physical problems. Why? Why would you do that? It makes no sense if you don't enjoy those things. If you don't enjoy your year. So the point is, this is a frustration. He's frustrated. Solomon's frustrated. And the frustration is without God, life's blessings cannot be enjoyed. 
Long life can't be, that's a blessing from God. Long life, good health, lots of kids, right? Lots of stuff, that's, that's God's blessing, but if you can't enjoy it, then, then why have it? Secondly, second frustration, without God, life's cravings cannot be satisfied. Without God, life's cravings cannot be satisfied. Look at verse 7, all a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. You think about this, and, and I think Psalm was just describing the vicious cycle of life, that you work, why do you work? So you can get money, so you can do what? Buy food, you got to go to the new HEB, right? So you got to work to get money to go to the new HEB to buy food so you can have something to eat. And the reason why you need something to eat is to stay strong and healthy so you can what? So you can work. So you can make some money so you can buy some groceries and you can eat so you can stay strong and healthy and you can work. And it's just this vicious cycle, right? And it's, it's, it's monotonous. It's meaningless is, is, is his point here. That your appetite is just never set. I mean, wouldn't that be great is you go to work and you, you, you get some money and you go to the store and you buy some food and you eat and you're good. But guess what? Next morning you're hungry again. So you got to crawl out of the cave and go kill something, right? So you can eat. And then you think, oh, that's good. Then you're hungry at lunch. Then you're hungry at dinner, right? It's like just doesn't, your, your appetite is never satisfied and you're just going round in circle. I'm just doing this so I can eat all day, right? Eat three times a day. Verse 8, for what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? He's just saying, listen, there's really no difference at the end of the day whether you're a wise man or a foolish man because you both end up in the same place. Even the poor man, he's saying, who maybe learns how to live within his means is ultimately no better off than anyone else. He's going to end up with the wise man and the foolish man too. And then I love verse 9. This is profound. If you haven't underlined this in your Bible, you might want to do that right now. What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. I read that over and over again and going, what does that mean? What does he mean by that? What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. In other words, it's better, right, to be thankful for what you have. This is what your eyes see, right? You see this wife, you see this husband, you see this house, you see this car, you see this job, you see this whatever, right? All the things you see in your life, okay, that's better than what your soul desires, that, that other house you hope to live in someday, that bigger, that nicer, newer car, right? That prettier wife, that more godly husband, you, you fill in the blank, right? So what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. In other words, stop daydreaming about the future and enjoy what you got. Or you're going to miss it. If you spend your whole life thinking about what's out there, right, you miss what's right here. And so it's better to make do with what we do have than to strive for what we don't have if you go through life always wishing you had something else or someone else, a different spouse, a different job, then you're never going to fully enjoy what God has provided you right now. 
Gordon Ketty said it this way. He said, how much better it is to be content with what you have than to spend life with longings that can never be satisfied. I mean, you think about how much time we waste thinking about stuff that, boy, I wish I had that. I wish I could do that. Right? That, let's face it, a lot of the stuff we dream about, we know it's never going to happen. It's not possible. It's not a reality. Unless you sin, right? You might be able to get it if you sin, right? But it's not a reality. So why waste all this time and the whole time you're out there thinking about this, you're missing the person that's right there next to you, right? That God has given you. And that's better. What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. That's, that's good stuff, isn't it? That's helpful. And he says, in other words, and if you don't do that, then it's futility and a striving after the wind, right? Kind of looking past what you have, what God has given you, right? Looking past all that to, to, to think about, well, I really want that. I wish I could do that. I wish I could go there. I wish I could have that, right? It's, it's a futility. It's a chasing after the wind. And this is one of his favorite phrases, right? This too is futility and a striving after the wind. This is the 10th and final time Solomon is going to use that expression, the striving after the wind, the chasing after the wind. This is the last time he's going to say it in this book. So again, he's expressing frustrations here. Without God, life's blessings cannot be enjoyed. Without God, life's cravings cannot be satisfied. And then thirdly, without God, life's questions cannot be answered. Life's questions cannot be answered. Look at verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. And I think, really, all this is talking about is that God, in eternity past, has sovereignly ordained a plan for our lives. We talked about that back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a time to be born, there's a time to die, there's a time to dance, there's a time to cry, right? to go to the wedding, to go to the funeral. This is all part of God's sovereign plan for our lives. And so, whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is. In other words, there's no use resisting his will for your life or arguing with God about it. He says, for, who can, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. I think that's a reference to God, Right? You can't argue with God. And uh, Job tried, and uh, he re- realized that he was wrong. In Job chapter 42, verse 1, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. In other words, I was saying stuff I had no business saying. I had no clue what I was saying. Hear now, and I will speak, I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my I see you, therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. He realized, you know what, God, I should have never argued with you. How about uh, Isaiah chapter 45? This is the passage that uh, Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9 about the doctrine of election. Who are you, O man, to answer or talk back to God. He's quoting from Isaiah 45, verse 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. 
an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth? Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you're making say, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? Can you imagine a baby coming out and going, what's up, mom? Why did you do that, right? Like the first thing out of your mouth is you're arguing with your mom or arguing with your dad. You take issue with your dad. Hey, why did you have me? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and His Maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and I shall commit to me, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. In other words, what, what are you thinking arguing with God? He's sovereign. He's ordained how your life was to be. And who are we to question that, right? He fashioned us as the potter, right? And, and who are we on the, that spinning wheel looking up going, you don't know what you're doing, do you? I can tell. You're, you're going to mess me up, aren't you? You know? No, let him have his way. He's God. Verse 11, for there are many words which increase futility. Remember he said back in Chapter 5, verse 1, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they, know, they, know, for they do not know what they are doing. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. In other words, hey, lots of words, man. You're just, it's just it's futility. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will send them, spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? You see how he's posing these questions? He's asking questions here. And I think his point is we have a limited ability to fathom the present Okay, limited ability to fathom the present, to really understand what in the world is going on in the present. And we have zero ability to perceive the future. Who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? I, I don't know. I, I, I'm just doing the best I can here, right? So you have a limited ability to figure out the present, your life now, and you have no ability to foresee the future. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? which leaves us with many unanswered questions about life and death. I mean, what are, the two, what are two of the most challenging questions of life? Number one is, why am I here? That's present. That's the, for who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime. Why am I here? What good is my life? And then the second question is not just why am I here, but where am I going? It's another critical question we all have to answer in life, and that's more the future, right? So you've got the present tense question, you've got the future tense question, why am I here, where am I going? In other words, what good is my life accomplishing here and now, and what will happen to me when life is over? That's what he's asking. It's what Derek Kidner, the, the famous um, Old Testament commentator, he said, it is a double bewilderment. <laughs> he's got double trouble here. He's left with no absolute values to live by or to live for, not even any practical certainties to plan for. So he doesn't even know what he's living for, and he doesn't even know what to expect in the future. I mean, does that not describe the majority of people on planet Earth? They don't have a clue what in the world they're here for. They don't have any values to live for. 
And they don't have any certainty and any plan for what happens when they breathe their last breath, when their heart beats their last beat. They don't know. It, it, and who can know? These are, these are these great mysteries, perplexities of life. And again, keep in mind here that Solomon is looking at life from an earthly perspective, purely earthly perspective. God's not in his thinking in chapter 6, okay? And so it poses plenty of questions and provides no real answers. When you think about life, when you look at life from a, from a purely worldly perspective, an earthly perspective, it, it poses plenty of questions but provides no real answers. And the answers to these questions that he's asking are found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. You think about the story, I was just thinking about a comparison in the New Testament, the story of the rich young ruler. We all know that story, right? The rich young ruler, I mean, this guy had it made in the shade. I mean, he had everything. He was young, he was in, he was in some position of authority, he was rich. I mean, everybody that looked at this guy probably thought, man, this guy's got it good, man. I mean, everything's going his way. I wish I was him. But then why did he run up to Jesus and fall down on his knees and beg him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, the guy had everything this world had to offer, but he was a mess. And he had a, he had a big old hole in his heart, right? And he knew something was missing. I mean, he had the fame, he had the fortune, but, but he didn't have what he wanted the most and needed the most, and that was eternal security. He didn't know how to get to heaven when he died. He didn't know for sure that when he died, he was going to heaven. He wanted to know, what do I have to do to know for sure that I'm going to go to heaven when I die? And you remember he said, uh, Jesus said to him to sell all that he had, right? And give it to the poor and come what? Follow me. And I love Peter. Peter's, you know, and, and of course we know how he responded. How did the rich young ruler respond? He said, oh, great, no problem, I'll do that. No, it says he turned around, he walked away sad because he was very rich. In other words, he wasn't willing to count the cost. He wasn't willing to do what Jesus told him to do. And so Peter's tracking here, and he says, um, behold, we have left everything and followed you. Like, what's going to happen to us? And I love Jesus' response. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and the age to come, eternal life. So Peter wanted to know where he was going to spend eternity just as badly as that rich young ruler. And so when Jesus laid it out, he was like, uh, uh, Jesus, you, you just said it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, you said it's impossible. It's, it's more, 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 uh, more uh, doable for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a guy to get into heaven. So what about me? What about us? We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus reassures him, doesn't he? He says, listen, Peter, you, you've done 
what I've asked you to do. And because of that, you will you can have the confidence, you can have the security that one day you will be with me in paradise, right? You will inherit eternal life. Well, that's the gospel. But Solomon wasn't ready to preach the gospel yet in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. He's still preparing us, his readers, for his big conclusion, his big crescendo, right? In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, the conclusion when all has been said or heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. That's where he's getting to. That's his goal. That's what he has in mind. But here at the midpoint, and again, chapter 6, 12 chapters, chapter 6, this is the midpoint of the book. He's still saying some of the same depressing things that he's been saying from the beginning and posing some of the same difficult questions that he's been posing from the beginning. And while he has mentioned God from time to time, right, that's been encouraging. We've seen little mentions of God in every chapter here. He's still mainly looking at life from a purely human perspective. You know why? Because he, he wants to show us how absurd, how horrific life is without God. He's creating a need for God. And so he's, he's, he's take, talking candidly about the, the disappointments and the dissatisfaction and the frustration of life without God. And so he's trying to stir up in our hearts a longing for God. Like whatever he's describing, I don't want anything to do with that, okay? That, uh, that or you know what? I can totally relate to that. I've thought those things. I've said those things. How come? Because you're without God. But there's a better way to live, right? And so depending on how you respond to this text tonight, this will either fuel your frustration about your life You'll just walk out of here more depressed, more miserable, more frustrated than you were when you walked in here. Or it's going to drive you to deeper dependence on God. Because you're like, I don't want to go there. I don't want chapter 6 to describe my life. And so one commentator said it this way, Solomon has shown us that we must abandon the foolishness of believing that anything or anyone other than God is grand enough to bring deep and lasting joy. Only the majestic God revealed in the pages of Scripture can bring joy and satisfaction. That's what he's getting at. Philip Ryken says it well. He said, the truth is that only God can fully satisfy through his word, through his worship, through the help that comes from the Holy Spirit when we turn to him in prayer. This is important to remember whenever we feel unhappy about anything in life. We need to ask ourselves what we truly need and remind ourselves what God wants to give us before, this is good, before we buy something or eat something or turn something on. Is that not what we do when we feel sad, when we feel unhappy, when we feel depressed? Like, get the bluebell and a spoon. Forget the bowl. We're just going for it, right? Or you go buy something because there's something about buying something that makes you feel better. 
Or, you know what, I'm just going to veg and watch TV. I'm just going to rent a movie and, and, and just run away from my problems, right? That's what we do instead of going to God. He said it's better for us to talk things over with our Father in heaven, saying something like this, Lord, you know how empty I feel right now and unhappy. Help me not run away from my problems, but to turn them over to you. Teach me that you're enough for me. And by your grace, give me the peace and the joy that you have for me in Jesus. And it's in Christ, it's in Jesus that our blessings can be enjoyed, our cravings can be satisfied, and our questions can be answered. Let me just close with this. I started tonight's message with a quote from a very depressed inmate who was executed Listen to this very depressing statement from a valedictorian of Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, Ivy League school, brilliant guy. This is his validoric, this is what he said in his valedictorian address. You ready? Quote, take pity on me, those of you who can justify the air you breathe. Send me letters and tell me why life is worth living. Rich parents, Write and tell me how money makes your life worthwhile. Dartmouth alumni, tell me how the Dartmouth experience has given you value, given value to your life. And if some one of you out there is also made like me, write me a letter and tell me how you came to appreciate the absurdity of your life. This is the smartest guy in the class. Ivy League school. And I think we need to have pity on people like that and compassion on people who are without God and therefore without hope. Listen, there's people who maybe have never said that in a speech at some graduation ceremony, but guess what? They're living that. That's, that, that stuff's going through their mind. That's in their heart. And guess what? You're living right next door to them. You work with them every day. You're going to bump into them tomorrow at the gas station or at Walmart. You're going to meet these kind of people, right? And so we need to be praying for opportunities to share the things that we're learning here in the book of Ecclesiastes with unbelievers who desperately need to hear this stuff. And that our hearts would go out to them, these hopeless people like sheep without a shepherd, right? And so praise God if we are saved, right? And we don't have to live this way anymore. But hopefully we're not just content to say, good, I'm, I'm good. I've got God. I've got hope. Well, again, that's a means to an end so that others could have God and could have hope, right? Father, we thank you for your word and thanks for this chapter six, which just on the surface looks really depressing, like who would even want to read it or study it? But Lord, there's so many good truths in there for us to apply to our lives And I pray that we would truly live them out. Lord, give us a burden for people like that Dartmouth valedictorian. Lord, knowing that we rub shoulders with those kind of people every day. And so often we just pass them by. And I just pray you'd give us a burden for them. Break our hearts for them. And give us opportunities, Lord, to boldly and tactfully and winsomely share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. So that they would have hope. And they would have peace. And they would have joy. And they would enjoy life the way you intended it for your creatures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.